Hi, welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I am your new host, Xi Jia, and for this episode, I chatted with Professor Mihal Kosinski. Mihal is an associate professor of organizational behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. His research interests recently encompass both human and artificial cognition. Currently, his work centers on examining the psychological processes in large language models, and leveraging artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, and computational techniques to model and predict human behavior. The title of the paper we discussed is "Theory of Mind Might Have Spontaneously Emerged in Large Language Models." We introduced basic concepts around theory of mind. Before delving into very interesting conversations about studying theory of mind and reasoning in large language models like ChatGPT, and whether we can claim that they have reached human-like understanding, Mihal also shared his scientific journey and gave some very lovely suggestions for PhD students. So, without further ado, here is our conversation. You know, there's plenty of st- people studying humans, and we have been studying humans for quite some time. And what's really, I think, heavily understudied area now is machines. Right, and that's a very exciting area, and that's why I'm very fascinated by your paper. And that was the very first one, so I was like,、oh, "That's a great opportunity to just learn from you directly by this interview." So thanks so much for being here. Welcome, Professor Kozinski. <laughs> Nice、uh, to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about this paper titled "Theory of Mind May Have Spontaneously Emerged in Large Language Models." I think maybe we can just start by unpacking the title. What is emergent capacities? Emergent capacities or emergent properties have been studied for quite some time in many different contexts. Those are properties of complex systems. That cannot be predicted from just looking at the components of the system. And a great example of an emergent property is life. If you look at chemistry of a cell,、uh, you can look at all of the elements that compose it, and yet you won't be able to predict the properties of the emergent phenomenon of life, of how the cell behaves, its metabolism, its life cycle, and so on. And this is just one of many phenomena. Or many complex systems that is characterized by emergent properties, flocks of birds or schools of fish are the same. You can understand an individual fish very well. You can study an individual fish and observe her or him for a long time. And but if you put thousands of fish together, they would have this emergent property of moving as a school together and avoiding predators. And all of those properties cannot be predicted from studying individual. So it sounds like emergent property is an element of complex system. So when we're talking about emergent property or emergent capacities in large language models, how should we think about it? Very much like with other complex systems that are created in the memory of a computer or that emerge from neural networks being trained to achieve certain goals, 
the properties are just unpredictable from just looking at individual neurons in the network. And some of those emergent properties are really obvious, such as we trained those models to predict the next word in a sentence, and we didn't really anticipate, the creator of those networks didn't really anticipate that in the process the networks will learn how, how to translate between languages, how to write computer code. They would learn how to tell jokes and participate in a dialogue. They will develop biases similar to human uh, biases. Now, all of those properties, now that we see them, they seem obvious. Oh yeah, of course. If you train a model to predict next word in the sentence, and sometimes those sentences are part of a joke, then of course, if you want a model that is great at predicting next word in a sentence, regardless of what text it's working with, it has to learn how to tell jokes. The same relates to dialogues. If you give it a bit of a text that seems like a dialogue, it will learn how to do that. But what I think it's a bit more elusive is that because texts that we train those models on, they are created by humans. And humans have many other psychological properties. Humans have emotion. Humans have empathy. Humans have different personality traits. So now if you want to be really good at mocking language of humans, at predicting what word a human would put next in this particular string of words, in this particular paragraph, you better learn about the fact that uh, people have different emotions, that people hmm. react with empathy to other people having emotions, that people have different personalities. Mm -hmm. So to give you a very simple example, if you have a paragraph that is obviously written by an extroverted person that talks about partying and going out and being excited to seeing people and interacting with them, but you continue this paragraph by referring to some things that extroverts are not really interested in, this will just not sound natural. In a way, implicitly, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, you have to get some understanding or some model mm -hmm. of personality so you become good at mocking language of people with different personalities. So that's a great segue to the next question, which is also a very important topic in this paper, which is theory of mind. Could you explain what theory of mind is and why, why are we studying it in machines? So let me start with just theory of mind and forget about machines for a second. That's one of the most uniquely human capabilities. And it describes our intrinsic, automated, instinctive ability to track minds of others. Imagine a situation we are here in this room and imagine that I left this room at some point and someone else came here and, I don't know, added something to my tea. Mm -hmm. Now I come back a few minutes later, this person that added something to my tea is gone, you would automatically recognize that you have to warn me something is in my tea, that uh, I have no way of knowing because I wasn't here. Now, this sounds so obvious and so easy to most of our listeners that they wouldn't even recognize it as some form of uniquely human and amazing capability. And this capability is automatically tracking not only your own state of mind, but also automatically tracking my perspective and automatically tracking what I know, what I believe in, what I don't know, and what I have not experienced. And now to make it even clearer how special this ability is, children only about the age of 9 or 10 fully develop this capability to automatically track the minds of others. 
many otherwise really able and apt animals, such as chimps or dolphins or elephants or dogs and cats. They are, some of them are really social. They are able to solve very complex tasks and they live in complex social systems. And yet they struggle with this task that is extremely simple to a human being of automatically tracking others' minds. Now, an interesting aspect of theory of mind is that when you look at theory of mind in humans, it turns out that it's very closely linked with language. It turns out that people who have trouble with uh, using language also tend to have trouble with theory of mind tasks. They essentially do not easily track people's minds as easily as others. People who, for some reason, were deprived of language, for example, because they were raised while being deaf in a place where they were not provided with education in language, they also struggle with nonverbal, in this case, theory of mind tasks. And what's really interesting is that when they become better at language, their theory of mind improves. It's actually hypothesized that in humans, this ability is also closely linked with language ability. Maybe it's a byproduct of our ability to use language. Maybe it relies on the same cognitive mechanisms that language relies on. I'm also interested in psychology of AI, like you, and it sounded like this obvious candidate of an ability that potentially one day could emerge in those large language models. Why? If humans, when they use language to communicate, we have theory of mind. So mm -hmm. we often tell stories or create stories where different characters have different states of minds and they don't know what other person's state of mind is and they are surprised or they track the state of mind of uh, other character. And then, of course, this is reflected in how the story goes. Mm -hmm. So now, if you want to be great at mocking human language, you should understand that there might be two characters in a story mm -hmm. that are not fully aware of what, what the other character thinks. Were there previous developmental studies showing that reading these fantasy stories describing the mental states of the characters to children could improve their theory of mind abilities? Yes, that's my understanding of the literature. Mm -hmm. That's also children who spend more time learning language uh, that are more talented on this front also develop theory of mind capabilities earlier. Of right. course, that's not an ultimate proof that it could be just a correlation or the causation can be reversed. But I think there are many good reasons to believe that in humans as well, theory of mind is linked with development of language. I think that sounds like a natural link to the second part of the question I asked, which was why you are studying theory of mind in large language models or machines. Was it because of this connection you've found in previous literature and you were like, huh, like how about us just diving into this aspect of large language models? How did you have that idea of studying this? I actually started with a broader set of ideas. I, I'm interested in emergent properties in AI. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that as those models are getting more complex, it's increasingly difficult to figure out their properties just by looking at their design. And even their creators are regularly surprised with what those models can do and how they behave in unexpected ways. So this is why I think that, in fact, psychology offers us this extremely useful toolkit to study this black box of AI. Why? Because psychologists are essentially experts in studying 
the black box of a human brain without fully understanding how the brain works and being, you know, we still have a long way to go in order to understand how human brains work and maybe we'll never fully understand how it works simply because it could be that a complex system like our brain will never be able to understand itself. So anyway, but essentially as psychologists, we're interested in studying this black box through putting it in uh, different situations and observing uh, its behavior through uh, using certain interventions like in experimental setting and trying to see how humans more broadly react. And I believe that this framework is essentially a great chance to understand those emergent properties of AI a bit better. And also a lot of the psychological tests and experiments that we deploy to humans lend themselves very well to be deployed to large language models that you can just interview. You can give them tasks. You can ask them questions. So that is also naturally bringing to the next question, which is what are some of the tasks that you would use to test theory of mind abilities in human and any machine? One of the most popular tasks in humans, and since we started doing it a few months ago in the machines as well, are so-called false belief tasks. And false belief tasks include one character, and this character has a false belief. And now a narrator of the story reveals to the listeners, look, uh, usually it includes container that mm-hmm. contains something that is inconsistent with the container's label. So imagine you have a box that says chocolate, but inside, in fact, there's no chocolate, there's something else, like a toy. And as a narrator of a story, you reveal to the audience that this is what's happening. And then you reveal there is a character that, let's say, finds this box that has chocolate written on it. And then you check what's the prediction of the audience, how this protagonist will behave while finding this box of chocolate. And now, a person without theory of mind, without being able to distinguish between what they know and what the character in the story knows, would assume that if they know that the box does not contain chocolate, that it really contains toys, then the character in the story must have the same point of view. They will not be able to see that the character in the story may have a different point of view. A person equipped with theory of mind would immediately recognize that, hey, in the story, has not seen this box before, has just found it and read the label, they probably will believe that the box contains something else than what's written on the label. Thanks for explaining that. And I also read there are these different tasks like the unexpected contents task and um, unexpected transfer task. So what's the example that you were de- describing? One of the an example for the unexpected content task. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So that's one type of the false belief task. And then another type of false belief task is unexpected transfer. And here usually you have a scenario where you have two uh, characters in a room and they have an con- they have a container and an object and one of the characters ta- let's call them John. John takes the object, let it be a cat and put it in one of the containers. Let it be a basket. So John takes a cat, puts it in a basket, and leaves the room. Now, in John's absence, the other character, let's call them Jenny, takes the cat and moves it from the basket to the box. And now Jenny also moves, leaves the room. Now, John comes back, and now you asked 
ask a person that is taking the task, okay, so John is now back in the room and John wants to play with the cats. Where is John going to look for the cats? Now, if you have three of mind, you will understand that while you know that cat is now in a box, John will still think that cat is in the basket. And that's where they are going to look for it. If you don't have the theory of minds, you will not be able to make a distinction between John's mind and your mind and different beliefs and different states of knowledge. So what have we found of this ability of theory of mind in humans? And what have you found of that ability using these sort of tasks in the large language models? So in humans, those tasks are delivered using different channels. You can deliver it in a textual form, so you can tell people this story and then have them answer some questions. But you can also show them a little dolls in some dollhouse. And then essentially, in humans, you track the reactions. You ask people to guess where John will look for the chocolate. Or in animals, especially, that cannot use language, you will reenact those stories and you would use eye tracking to track where the animal expects the character is going to go next to look, for example, for a hidden banana. Now, with the large language models, we are limited to essentially delivering it in textual format and then having uh, the models answer the question. Now, of course, when we deliver those questions, it could be that the model just by accident says, cat is in the box, but John will look for the cat in the basket. It could be that because of its training, the model simply believes that John always looks for cats in a basket. So we take we could take it as a correct response, but in fact, it just could be random. It could be luck. It could be some response bias that is unrelated to theory of mind. So when we deploy those tasks to computers, we take many precautions to try to limit this risk of computers solving those tasks randomly or thanks to some response biases unrelated to theory of mind. So for example, when we... So one great advantage of studying computers is that they don't really get tired easily <laughs> when you administer tasks to them. So we can, first of all, we can administer the same task hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, most of the modern language models are not entirely deterministic. They will just give you potentially slightly different response mm -hmm. each time. So what you can do, you can take the same task, deliver it 100 times, and see whether the response of the model is stable. Mm -hmm. But now you can also ask control questions. So mm -hmm. first control question is to first check whether the model knows where the cat really is at the moment. So ask it, hey, where's the cat? Mm. But then you can reset the model. So the model doesn't even know what it answered to this question. You give it the task again. And then you say, hey, where will John look for the cats? And then see whether the model guesses it correctly. And then you can repeat this procedure 10,000 times, how, however much you want. But then you can go further. Hey, if maybe the bias is related to John's always looking for cats in baskets, let's just swap the names of the kids. Mm. And so now John is leaving the room and Jenny is coming back. Let's switch the names of the containers. Let's start with putting the cat in the box and then move it to the basket. Now let's change other details of the story. Now let's add additional stories, which are virtually identical, just with this crucial element of unexpected transfer removed. So imagine exactly the same story, but Jenny takes the cat out of the basket, plays with it a little, and then puts it back to the basket without transferring it to the box. And now, of course, in this case, there should be no false mm -hmm. belief, right? John left it in the basket, 
Now John comes back, the cat is still in the basket. So you can add those control stories where you where you do not want the model to predict false belief because there's uh, no false belief present in the story. And then, of course, you can go further and then design tens more of scenarios of the same kind when this is not really a room, but maybe it's some uh, situation when you have two servers and you move files from one server to another, or you have a bank account and you move money between bank accounts. So you can essentially get creative. We use a research assistant to write 40 different stories for us. And then each single story was modified in all sorts of ways uh, that I described before. So ultimately, we had a computer to answer 40 tasks. And each task, I believe it was in 200 versions. And then each time it was also repeated multiple times. So the computer answered really hundreds of thousands of tasks. And then when you look at the results, uh, you can see that older and simpler models, such as GPT-1, GPT-2, and GPT-3 in smaller versions, such as BERT, Albert, Roberta, so older large language models, they get those tasks wrong most of the time. And even if they get them right, if you start asking control questions, they get confused really easily. Now, uh, GPT 3.5 Turbo, so the first model from ChatGPT family, suddenly goes from solving virtually no tasks whatsoever to solving maybe 30-40% of those tasks and solving them in all of those control formats and versions. And when you change the details, it still gets it right. And then suddenly GPT 4, ChatGPT 4, solves great majority of tasks, reaching 90, 95% performance. And interestingly, when you look at the tasks that it failed on, it seems, at least to me, that, hey, maybe it's actually we who designed the tasks, who actually our blind research assistant who designed those tasks, that they wrote them in ways that are not entirely clear. And when you actually start playing with the details, you could see, hey, maybe actually what we thought was the steer of mind task Maybe if you actually look closer, it actually turns out that it's not, that maybe character had a way of knowing from the context that something changed. So the bottom line is the newest, most capable model from ChatGPT4 family seems to be acing those tasks. And even when it gets it wrong, it seems that it might be the shortcoming of the task. Interesting. That's really interesting. And I found this way of testing really smart and also the... A research assistant you hired is sounding very creative. <laughs> comes up with all the variations. It took them a very long time, I must say. It sounds like it. I thought, what is it like? It's going to be a few hours of work to write 40 scenarios like this. But then it turns out it was days and days of writing. It's not that easy to write 40 false belief tasks, it right. turns out. And actually, as you were sharing this experience, I was wondering what could be ways that we design such a novel task that we can know for sure that the ChatGPT was not trained for. So that's an interesting one because, of course, my the theory here is that the theory of mind may have emerged in language models, not just randomly, uh, but in response to those models having to deal with tasks that can be solved easily using theory of mind, such as understanding that characters in the story may have different points of view. So, of course, ChatGPT 
encountered similar stories, similar mm -hmm. tasks in its training data. It didn't encounter the same exact story because mm -hmm. they were made up by the research assistant. And then after they have been made up by the research assistant, they were additionally modified in those hundreds of uh, ways to create clones, slightly mm -hmm. different clones of the task. Yet the expectation is the model surely encounters similar tasks in the past. And this is why the model developed this ability to track or potentially develop this ability to track characters' minds. So it's a bit like with chess. When you train Alpha Zero to play chess, of course, it doesn't learn chess just randomly. It just sits around the table and suddenly develops an ability to play chess. Not at all. You give it a chessboard and say, hey, play. And then after it plays chess a few billions of times, it learns how to play chess and it does it really well and it comes up with strategies that humans never came up with. So again, it's not that Alpha Zero is winning chess games while it has never played chess before. It did play chess before, and this is why it got good at playing chess. I think the same reasoning applies to mm -hmm. other emergent capabilities of AI, uh, such as uh, being able to solve theory of mind tasks. It learned how to do it because its training data contains similar challenges. Mm -hmm. I was curious, did you find this a surprising outcome when you found that the ChatGPT was passing it all very successfully or was it expected already? I started running those experiments when Albert was the most advanced and capable model. I think it was 2018 or 17. And I, when I started, I was really excited. I thought, hey, this model is crafting sentences that, that make sense. And I was hoping that maybe it could solve some of those tasks. And this model was really bad. And then I remember when I was working on this project and GPT-1 and GPT-2 were released and both of those models just failed on those tasks. Then when GPT-3 got released, it started solving those tasks with, uh, actually got much better. But then when... I dug deeper and started running control tasks and changing little details in this story. I was disappointed that it just would get confused mm. so easily. So at some point, I must say that I lost, lost faith that, that this ability will actually emerge one day in the language models. And what happened is that, in fact, I was working on another project and I wanted to move this project to the archive. I had some code written in Python that automatically delivers those tasks to models. And I had I drafted a manuscript with null results showing that there's no effect. And it kind of, it was somewhat underwhelming and I was working on this manuscript, but it was problem with describing null results is that, hey, maybe the machine doesn't know how to do it, but it could be that maybe I'm doing something wrong. I'm just delivering this task. There's some error in my code. And so it's also a difficult task. In fact, uh, I feel oftentimes to describe null results properly. And then ChatGPT got released. And I just, without much hope, ran my research pipeline on this new model. And I was just shocked that suddenly we went from getting most of the tasks wrong to getting great majority of tasks uh, right. And then in response to the peer review process, peer reviewers suggested some additional control tasks that we should use. And those were some great ideas. And what happened is that the performance of earlier models mm -hmm. significantly dropped. GPT-3 from solving quite a few tasks, when you added those additional controls, the performance dropped significantly. ChatGPT had absolutely no problem dealing with all of those additional controls that we added.
Yeah, that's very cool. Thanks for sharing that journey. Um, so since February 2023, which was when your、uh, paper was published, um, that was the first one in a set of papers that was discussing the topic about theory of mind in large language models. So after that, there were a few other papers out discussing the topic on this. Since then, has your thought on the abilities of theory of mind in large language models changed, or what do you think now? Of course. First of all, I learned a lot about testing theory of mind. What's interesting is that when we apply those tests to humans, we somehow we assume, hey, if a human can solve this task, then human has、mm. the theory of mind. Theory of mind. Now. When we apply the same task to a computer model and computer models solve those tasks, one should be much more skeptical, because computers have many abilities that we don't have. Computers can spot patterns in vast datasets, which would be difficult to spot、uh, for humans. Computers have vast memory of、uh, and way more accurate memory, way more literal memory of what they read and encountered before. So it could be that while in humans the easiest explanation of us being able to solve a false belief task is we have theory of mind. Though let's face it, it's just the easiest explanation. It could be that humans also are solving theory of mind tasks thanks to some wording of the task that reveals the correct、mm-hmm. response even to an individual without theory、like、of heuristics. mind. Like exactly, it's using some non-theory of mind heuristics、mm-hmm. with computers, with machine models. It's of course very different. They have those abilities we don't have. One has to be much more cautious while interpreting those results. This is why, despite the fact that we have evidence that GPT-4 solved correctly literally tens of thousands of tasks and they're modified in their in different versions, I, my title still says theory of mind might have emerged in those large language models, and I'm conv- convinced now that. Even if it hasn't emerged now, it is very likely that maybe in ChatGPT five or maybe ChatGPT six will reach the stage where really it will be difficult to find an alternative explanation. Look, at some point, if you see this model solving not only one task but forty different types of tasks, and then you modify those tasks in hundreds of different ways, and it still can adjust its behavior correctly, at some point, saying, "Hey, it's probably using some unknown heuristic." That is absolutely not obvious to us humans, but computer is using it. At some point, this becomes an extraordinary hypothesis. Hey, really? Do you really think that there is something in this language of the task that reveals the correct response to a computer that we cannot really spot、uh, or or perceive? At some point, essentially, the simplest potential interpretation of those findings that pass the Occam's razor test is. That maybe those computers, those machines, developed some ability of tracking minds of different characters in the story. I'm very excited for this series of papers because I feel like it's a great way of discussing. It's like scientific exchange of ideas. We share like the data we collected and we see how things go, and it's a very exciting direction moving forward. And maybe we'll see more evidence or other ways.、Um, I had a question. About other social reasonings. So you said that you are、uh, interested in studying psychology and machines, and maybe like the intersection of them. So I was wondering, other than the theory of mind 
ability. Have you been thinking about other kinds of social reasoning or learning or human psychology abilities that we could test or study in AI? I'm very interested in reasoning capabilities in machines and humans, cognitive biases. It seems that, again, because humans generating language suffer or benefit from cognitive biases, a machine trained to mock human behavior, to mock human language, in order to mock this behavior very well, it should also develop some form of a mechanism that produces language that is affect that, that looks like it's affected by human-like cognitive biases. And in fact, we have a number of established ways of studying cognitive biases uh, in humans, like, for example, cognitive reasoning test or semantic illusions. And we can observe, we can use those tasks to study patterns of reasoning in humans. Humans have this tendency to intuit answers rather than engage in deliberate reasoning if they don't have to, just to save time and energy. And you can see the same patterns in computer models. So to give you an example, if we, if we have a task where you say, look, there is a pool and a pool is being filled with water. And every day the amount of water in the pool is doubling. Now, if it takes 10 days to fill the entire pool, how many days it will take to fill half of the pool? Can you guess? I feel like it's like an exponential. Exactly. You seem, to be no- you seem to know that. So people tend, because you say, hey, it takes 10 days to fill the whole pool. How much time does it take to fill half of the pool? People would say, hey, if it's 10 days for the whole pool, it's probably five days for half of the pool. Completely missing the fact that the amount of water in the pool is doubling each day. Meaning that if it's doubling each day, if it's full on the 10th day, it would be half on the ninth day, just one day Mm -hmm. before. And this is an example of essentially using cognitive ease to solve a task like this, right? We hear 10 days, we hear it half of the time, Mm -hmm. half of 10 is five. Five. We kind of ah, completely miss the we miss the ex- the doubling right. and the doubling part of the of the task. So if you give tasks like this to humans, they would mm. respond intuitively rather than correctly. But if you then motivate a human, hey, by the way, think about this for a moment. Humans will usually get it right with a little bit of thinking. Mm. And now, interestingly, there are humans. Let's say humans that experienced those kind of tasks before. They already know there's a trick. So if you give them this task, they'll be like, ah, there must be a trick. And they think about this for a second, and they give you a correct response. It, there are also people who have jobs that predispose them. If you're a teacher, mm. or if you're a psychologist and deliver such tasks. Or if you're a mathematician or if you're a nerd that like loves mathematical tasks, you may have such a good intuition that if I tell you this story, even your intuition, your kind of immediate reaction is going to be correct. Mm-hmm. So you observe those different cognitive biases in humans to, to respond to those tasks in different ways. Turns out that the same applies to large language models. When you look at early models like GPT-1 or GPT-2 and you give them a task of this kind, they mostly respond in nonsensical manner. They just, you ask them how many days it will take to fill the pool, and they would say, I like the breakfast. They would just answer like in a completely unrelated or or silly fashion. Now, more recent models, the models that can interpret the task correctly, they would become, they become hyperintuitive. 
So while humans sometimes get those tasks right, models such as GPT-3 would always respond in an intuitive way. Mm. 10 days to the full pull, it must be five, five days, days for the half pull, completely missing the exponential growth. But then the most recent models, ChatGPT 3.5 and ChatGPT 4, before giving you an answer, they would say, okay, thank you for this task. Let me think about this. And then in front of you, they start reasoning, essentially by writing the response down. Mm -hmm. And very often they arrive at the correct response. So this made us think, hey, they don't really have short-term memory, those models, like we have. They cannot bounce ideas around in their own heads and try to calculate the results in different way and then pick the most correct one. They cannot really think about it internally. But they can use their input-output context window to essentially take notes and mm. think externally on paper, which is not dissimilar from us solving a mathematical equation we can solve it by trying to have some equations in our heads and solve them and try to look at the results or we can solve them by writing them out on a piece of paper so it seems that those most more recent models can essentially they spontaneously learn how to do it they would just write out the solution on a piece of paper and they would just give you a correct answer hmm. now interestingly if you go to those earlier models and you say hey don't give me answers straight away don't give me this intuitive first word that comes to your mind answer, but actually think about it step by step. It turns out that even GPT-3 can suddenly solve those tasks accurately with way more precision if you instruct it to first think step by step, meaning those models, their reasoning capabilities can be improved very much like reasoning capabilities of humans by forcing them to take notes and solve it on a piece of paper. Interesting. But then there's even more interesting twist to this story. Just randomly, while working with this ChatGPT4 and ChatGPT3 models, who can solve those tasks correctly most of the time by writing the solutions on paper, I've noticed that sometimes they actually just give you a correct response, but without thinking step by step. They intuitively give you a correct hmm. response. So what we've done, we said, we did the equivalent of asking an old model to think step by step, just in a reversed way. We took ChatGPT4 and said, okay, this is a task, but don't think step by step. Just give me a response in one sentence or just in one word. And it turns out that if you deprive the model of the, when you instruct the model not to write the reasoning step by step, their performance goes down a little bit, mm. but not that much. They still can just intuitively solve this task huh. uh, correctly. Meaning, essentially, that those more recent models did not only spontaneously develop this skill to solve tasks by reasoning on the piece of paper, but also they developed this superior intuition. Intuition superior compared with GPT-3, but also, I must say, intuition superior to human participants. Because most of us can solve those tasks correctly only if we actually think about this step-by-step step in Maybe do some our calculations. <laughs> exactly. That's fascinating. Is that your current line of work? That's uh, We just published the paper. It's coming out in Nature Computer Science in a few days, precisely on, on this. Exciting. <laughs> What's the title of that paper? 
intuitive oh that's a good question intuitive <laughs> thinking emerged in large language models oh that, damn it let's cut it i don't i forgot <laughs> uh, maybe actually i can give you the title maybe you could read it uh, let's make a clap here so we can remove this embarrassing fragments of me not remembering the title of my own paper so. that's totally okay <laughs> but would it be a may image or not a may <laughs> um here because we talk i think i th yeah Cognitive biases, I feel, are less controversial and treated less as an ability, but rather as a response style. So clearly we observe those models having those biases mm. in responses. And I, so I think this time we just wrote that models, that those biases emerged and disappeared because those biases actually disappear in the newest, the models that, that essentially respond in an unbiased mm. way. That's fascinating. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. And I don't care about the title for now. But <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think Like the implications are for the large language models having the theory of mind or other abilities like reasoning? Well, first of all, we don't really know whether machines have theory of minds. Yet the only thing we can observe is that they can solve theory of mind tasks. Now in humans, we would interpret it as having the ability theory of mind. In computers, I think this we should be way more skeptical and way more cautious with making such a conclusion. Yet at a certain point, just becomes the simplest explanation. And I also want to refer to a discussion that computer scientists and people interested in philosophy of mind had over the last 50 or 60 or 70 years now, where they try to answer the question, okay, so we see a computer being able to do something, a computer being able to behave as if it was empathetic or as if it had a personality or as if it had theory of mind. Now, does it mean that it really has theory of mind or is empathetic or, or has personality? Now, in thinking about this question, it's impossible not to refer to famous Chinese room arguments, John Searle's argument from 1980. And John Searle imagined himself in a room with a bunch of guidelines and instructions on how to interpret Chinese. So he said, look, I'm not a Chinese speaker. Imagine I'm in this room. On one side, I have an input. Maybe someone comes to the room from the outside and types in a question in Chinese and it's displayed on a screen inside of my room. Now, I don't speak Chinese. I look at the signs. I look at various books that I have with rule, rules and ways of processing those signs and using those rule ledgers, essentially, if this, then that algorithm, if you see this sign and that sign and so on, this is how you answer. I essentially produce an answer and I just output it on the other side of the room. So John Sarl argued that, look, from the outside, the room seems to speak Chinese. The room seems to understand Chinese. You, you ask it a question, it will give you an answer. But Searle argued, look, I can't speak Chinese. The room can't speak Chinese. The rules and dictionaries I have here don't understand or know Chinese. Those are just rules. Hence, there's no understanding mm -hmm. in this system. And Searle likens a machine solving some cognitive tasks to a Chinese room. 
And people disagreed with this argument. People would say maybe the operator of the room doesn't have ability to understand language. Maybe the rule ledgers don't have ability to understand language. But the system, entire system, has such an ability. I personally agree with Sarl that there seems to be no understanding of Chinese in this room. What I think we often miss, though, in the discussion about AI ability today is that this metaphor just does not apply to modern AI systems. Modern AI systems are not given rule ledgers on how to interpret language. No one sits down to write if this, then that conditions to explain to machine how to respond to a particular question. Modern AI systems are based on neural networks that start with, that train themselves to develop a particular ability. And now, when you think about neural network, each of the neurons in the neural network is very well described by the Chinese room argument. Each neuron in the network gets some input mm -hmm. from the neurons on the lower layer or from the sensors on the outside ah. of the system, then processes this input using some rules mm -hmm. that are on some written on some rule ledger equation inside the neuron, and then passes this information on to neurons on the level above. So now we can all probably very easily agree that neurons in a neural network do not really speak Chinese, do not understand Chinese, do not know Chinese, do not have theory of mind. But this ability emerges spontaneously, it seems, mm -hmm. as a property of a neural network. Mm. And we have examples of such systems that we are that are very well known. Our human brain is composed of individual neurons where each one of those neurons is quite complex and wonderful, but just a machine. No neuron in our head is conscious. No neuron in our head knows anything or speaks Chinese or understands anything. Those are essentially machines that just take some input, process it, and spit it out as an output. All of them are Chinese rooms. Now, consciousness, knowing, feeling, understanding, emerges as a property hmm. of this neural network that our brain is built of. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. And I can definitely see that connection of uh, the neural network and our human neural network, the brain. But I was wondering, while there's no rules set in the, I don't know, neural networks about how to translate, do you think the rules are there in the training? As you said earlier, that similar to the experience or the teaching or the learning that we have as humans. Do we are we exposed to the rules from these data? Of course. So neural networks, both in our brain and in large language models in other AI systems, they discover patterns in the data. Mm -hmm. They learn the rules mm -hmm. of processing this data to arrive at the desirable output. But those rules are not given to the model externally. Mm. So we cannot argue, hey, it's really us who speak Chinese or have theory of mind. And we wrote those rules down on a piece of paper and we just gave it to the machine to use it to achieve its task. No, we set the machine on a path to learn to discover those rules on its own. And those rules are written, are are written or encoded on the level of individual neuron. Mm which is very well represented by the Chinese room metaphor. 
But now the network of those networks of those neurons have emergent properties that cannot be derived, cannot be understood by simply looking at an individual neuron. So now let's actually look at this problem from a data perspective. If we agree that humans are conscious, can know things, can understand things, uh, have essentially all of those human-like mental properties. Now let's start removing neurons from our brains, <laughs> cutting it down, maybe reorganizing our brains to have simpler structure, maybe simplifying the very complex neural machinery that our neurons can use. So let's remove neurotransmitters. Let's make those neurons more uniform and simpler. Of course, as we're doing it, as we're simplifying the structure of a human brain, at some point, some of our mental capacities will start disappearing. Very much, actually, like in the context of people that suffer from degenerative brain diseases or aging, that essentially slowly reduces the number of neurons and reduces neural functionality, hence reducing human brain's capabilities. But now, you would still retain many of those functions even if you remove a lot of those neurons and simplify them greatly. So essentially what I'm arguing is that those human properties such as consciousness, understanding, knowing, they emerge somewhere as you go from a single neuron to a vast neural network of 85 billion neurons that we have in our brain. So somewhere on the way here, phenomena such as consciousness, understanding, knowing, emerge. Large language models are somewhere on this pathway. They're very much simpler than a human brain. They're composed of much fewer neurons. Those neurons in the neural network, artificial neural network, are much simpler than the neurons in human brain. And yet, on the functional level, they can achieve outcomes very similar, very human. Uh, now the question is, at which stage, you know, between a single neuron through 1 million neurons in GPT-3 to 85 billion neurons in the uh, human brain, at which point we can start talking about understanding, mm -hmm. knowing, rather than just uh, being able to stupidly solve <laughs> some tasks. And I don't have answer to this question, but I essentially think that at some point we should be expecting that those growing in size and capacity and complexity neural networks will start expressing abilities in similar way to what we observe in humans. I see. So you think there may be a time in the future where we can call it understanding, but not now. Maybe now. It's, I'm, I'm saying that somewhere on this uh, path now where at this development from a single neuron to a perfect replica of a human brain, consciousness, understanding, knowledge emerge? I don't know exactly, but it has to emerge somewhere. I want to zoom out a little bit from this very specific question, which is studying psychology, learning, or human capacities, both in human and AI. As a researcher who's studying this very interesting intersection of both, what do you think is the benefit I can see multiple benefits. First of all, we're increasingly surrounded by artificial intelligence models that play an increasingly important role in our lives and in our societies. They help us to make decisions. They make decisions for us very often. They mediate our communication. They entertain us. They teach us. 
So this is why I believe it's just extremely important to understand mm -hmm. how those machines work, what kind of cognitive biases mm -hmm. they have, what limitations they have, what advantages they have, how to use them best to uh, make our lives and societies as successful and safe and uh, pleasant and well-off as possible. And on the other hand, avoid potential risks. So understanding of the artificial brain is not only int extremely interesting, but also extremely important for mm -hmm. our well-being. But I think studying those artificial networks offers uh, us also insights about our own human brains. And this can be on a very simple level. For example, when we were administering those theory of mind tasks to large language models, we started, before we wrote our own bespoke tasks, we started with tasks that were used previously on studies of children. And as we were deploying those tasks, we noticed that some of those tasks were just wrong. And mm. we didn't notice for decades while using them on humans. One thing, for example, that you can do with a model that you cannot do really with a human is you can deploy the theory of mind task in one sentence increment. You just can give the mm. first sentence and then ask the diagnostic question. Where do you think John thinks is the cat? Or mm -hmm. where will John look for the cat? Then you give two sentences of the task, then three sentences. And as the task unfolds, you can see how the model belief about where John will look for the cat will change. Mm. And in, in a, one of the most widely used theory of mind tasks in humans, so-called maxi task, mm -hmm. it's an unexpected transfer. Maxi puts the chocolate in one cupboard, then the father, Maxi's father or mother moves the chocolate to another cupboard. And then Maxi goes away when the transfer happens, but comes back. And you ask children, okay, when will, where will Maxi look for the chocolate? But just before you ask them, where will Maxi look for the chocolate? There is a sentence in the task that says, Maxi still remember where he puts <laughs> the chocolate. Now, I didn't really think much about this sentence when I first saw it. It was a task that has been used for literally 40 years mm -hmm. in testing children. It's been a very well-validated task. But then when we were delivering this task in one sentence increments to large language models, we noticed that even old models can solve this task correctly. But they only can solve this task correctly when this last sentence is included. Mm. Meaning that this last sentence, essentially, at least in the context of large language models, reveals the correct response. Meaning, essentially, that this task is potentially invalid and we have never noticed it before. From those simple level benefits, such as improving our testing methods on humans to potentially more interesting questions. Hey, if an ability to solve theory of mind tasks appears in large language models that cannot see, cannot touch, or were not trained to reason. Mm -hmm. They were just trained to predict next word in a sentence. This suggests that those tasks can be solved simply by using neural networks trained for language. Mm -hmm. Meaning that it's possible that in humans, theory of mind tasks are also solved by neural networks mm -hmm. trained to use language. Does it prove it? Absolutely not. It just shows, hey, it's feasible. We can mm. do this in the computers. So this informs us, hey, maybe a One similar thing is mechanism for in human humans learning. as well. Now, it's extremely difficult to study neural networks in humans. 
it's much easier to study, dissect, do neuroscience on artificial neural networks, which we can conduct a live surgery on an artificial patient that is using the language and observe exact patterns of neural activations. Does it prove that the same thing is happening in humans? Absolutely not. Is it possible that some mechanisms were essentially reversed engineered or uh, rediscovered by those artificial networks? Of course. So we can learn something here about human psychology, potentially. Thanks so much for your insight. I really want to save some time for more personal questions that I'm very interested in about your scientific journey. You were studying psychology and then in the computer science and now in the graduate school of business. How did you come all the way to where you are now? I would like to say that it was all planned and was growing up, I was planning <laughs> to be a professor at Stanford, but absolutely not. I grew up in an environment where I didn't even know anyone with a PhD. I didn't know that becoming a professor was a viable career path. I didn't have any role models of this kind. And I just discovered it by accident. And I was just, by the way, so lucky that I managed to stumble upon someone who was just going to get the master's in London. I was mm. in Warsaw at the time. And I it's funny, from hindsight, it sounds so obvious. Of course, you can go and get your master's or PhD in another country, in another city. Uh, to someone who didn't have anyone in the family or among their social network who ever has done such a thing, uh, it was a discovery. Wow, people can uh, do this. So my original plan was to follow the uh, what the role model in this case did. So go to England and get a master's degree. I was studying for my master's in Poland at the time. And so I, by sheer luck probably, got mm -hmm. into Cambridge. And I went there with an intention to do my master's and then go back and, and continue my life back in Poland. But I just liked it so much at the university. I liked every day of it so much that I just decided very quickly after a month or two, I decided, wow, if I can find a way of staying here in Cambridge for as long as possible, I'm definitely going to do this. So I applied for a PhD. I got accepted. I think I was liked at the department. And there's this in England, there's this easy path from being a master's student mm. to extending it into a PhD. I had no funding, but I thought oh, I will figure it out somehow. And in fact, I was just doing some odd jobs, which, by the way, was not allowed for Cambridge students. And I had a credit card that I just maxed out trying to pay for my studies and accommodation. And somehow, again, by sheer luck and a lot of goodwill from the professors at the department, they just found me some funding. Mm. So literally when I was like reaching the bottom of my credit line on my credit card after a few months of studying... I suddenly got this gift of a very tiny, small scholarship that essentially enabled me to continue studying. Wow. And then, and then, so the formally the studies are three years of a PhD in England, mm. which by the way, this is why people, you know, should be doing their PhDs in America because it's just so much more time mm. to develop and think. And American universities are so much more affluent and generous than even the most affluent European universities. So I tried to stay as long as possible. And in fact, I, I think I stayed four and a half years. And after four and a half years, the head of the department was like, oh, look, if you don't finish until the end of the year, we'll have to kick you out with just a master's degree. So I got my act together and submitted my thesis. But just I just loved it. I loved being at the university mm -hmm. so much. I, 
many of other students of my peers or of my friends, they just went straight from undergrad to do the master degree and then do the PhD. And they just couldn't wait to leave the university and have the real adult life and have a mortgage and have a house and have a family and leave behind this chapter of their lives. I was the opposite. I had to work back at home. I, uh, I worked for many years before I uh, started doing my PhD. So for me, it was just, I had, I, I was convinced that if I can find a way of not going back to being an adult with a mortgage uh, again, I will, uh, I'll definitely choose this path. Yeah, I could tell that you really loved doing research for your PhD life. But I'm curious, like, how comes that you become professor in a business school, particularly? Because you are in different departments and you've gained a lot of different skills and Maybe the other departments are more familiar to you, but how comes that it ended up being business school? I like it here because I love doing research rather than managing large research groups. My understanding, and I studied at a regular psychology department where professors had assistants and postdocs and army of PhD students, and they had those huge labs, they had to apply for funding and essentially build a small enterprise, small scientific empire. Where most of those professors that taught me at Cambridge, they just really didn't have that much time to do research on their own because so many people relied on them and so many people needed their advice and support. And what I really liked about business school, once I discovered mm. that business schools exist, is that we just don't have those huge labs here. You are like an eternal postdoc where you can uh -huh. work with PhD students, but you don't have to. Uh, you can probably get a postdoc if you really, really try, but you don't have to. So, of course, your academic output is greatly reduced because I essentially work on my projects alone. I'm nearly 10 years past my own PhD and I don't work with postdocs. I work with collaborators all around the world, but I do not have postdocs. I work with one or two PhD students maximum and those students work with other professors as well. So it's more of a solitary research experience and some people hate it because they want they want to have people work for them and research for them and so on and i absolutely love it i just <laughs> love doing research myself like i did when i was a phd student mm -hmm. and business school is really great for this we don't have to apply for funding we do not we cannot have large research groups but it also means that we don't need funding for it mm -hmm. and i could spend my whole time just running research on my own Interesting, and that would be perfectly okay and that's what I love doing. I see. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing. I didn't know about that aspect of business school, like not needing to have a lab and it sounds like a lot of administrative work is reduced. I guess any final suggestions for young scientists or researchers? Okay, I don't really know what I would recommend. My path was try to find something that is most interesting to me and also if you find something that is most interesting to you, you still will probably hate it by the time you wrote your first or second paper because you just spent so much time on it and maybe boredom kicks in a little and maybe you realize that it's way more complex and way less clear than you thought. But now imagine have those, having those feelings on subjects about a subject that you don't really care that much about. It's just even more difficult to maintain motivation. So I would just recommend less strategic thinking, mm -hmm. less trying to predict what the field 
will be like in five years, what the recruitment committees will be looking for by the time I finish the PhD. We cannot really predict that. But and if you can, if you are, if your predictions, if you make those predictions, there are probably many other people who make the same predictions. So now you're going to be just one of many people who ended up training in the same uh, direction. I would just recommend do what you're really passionate about because it's just going to be easiest to maintain motivation and high quality of work. Every single thing actually I started looking at in my career. Initially, people really disbelieve that this could be an interesting uh, research path. So when I started studying Facebook and people's behavior on social media, uh, people didn't even know what Facebook was at the time, and they said, "Hey, why should be why this is why shouldn't why should it be something that psychologists are interested in? Uh, this is probably for computer scientists and so on." And of course, now studying social media and human behavior in social media, mass persuasion and propaganda, recommendation algorithms, all of this is mainstream in psychology. But at that time, I thought it's a bit silly and. I done many other silly things that people thought that it's silly, and they were right. <laughs> so if you, I essentially think that if you don't dare to explore different silly areas, you prevent yourself from stumbling upon some very interesting things that that are going to be very exciting to you and others. How lovely! That's so relevant to me <laughs> at the moment. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, but there's a kind of other side. So one, don't be afraid to engage in those moonshots of research that maybe it's not entirely clear at the beginning what's going to come out of it and what it's all about and maybe no one else is really doing it much the kind of other aspect here is don't fear to abandon projects mm -hmm. that maybe you feel that are going nowhere and it's okay to put such a project on the shelf and say okay let me just come back to it in a year from now and look at it i have quite a few rnrs at some very prestigious journals that I never resubmitted simply because I looked at the reviewers' comments and I thought, wow, they have a good point, okay? This thing is a bit weak and maybe I just don't really have a good idea how to make it less weak. And, and this is just my view and people have different views here. But I think it's just much better to have just paper that you really like and believe in and you're really excited about mm -hmm. once every three years or maybe once every two years and have three or four papers that you don't care that much about every single year. And if you have just one paper every two years that you're really interested in and you really stand behind it, hey, it's going to be a better paper than any of the papers from those three papers that you published every year. Thank you very much. That is my highlight for today. <laughs> I'll remember it. Thank you so much for listening. The paper we mentioned that was recently published is called Human-Like Intuitive Behavior and Reasoning Biases Emerged in Large Language Models but Disappeared in ChatGPT. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in a show note or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, 
please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcast or elsewhere, so that more people can find us. Thank you very much. Have a great day.